Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name is Mark Laithwaite and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, boys. The sun is shining here in God's own country in Wigan. Uh, Welcome to another podcast. It's great to be back. This is almost becoming a regular habit. Mike, is the sun shining where you are? Hello, everyone. It is sunny and snowy all at the same time. Fantastic. Bit of everything. The kids must be loving that. They are. They are. They, we, we had a day down in the sea on Saturday with coats on and woolly hats on and then quickly stripping off into the wetsuits to have a swim and then getting warm again. Yesterday we had a walk in shorts with a bit of snow. So, yeah, it's been an interesting couple of days, by the way. Fantastic. And, uh, and Ian, uh, I presume you're in sunny Birmingham? Sunny Birmingham, yeah, it's pretty similar really, really cold, but but sunshine most of the day so far. We've got a little bit of flour now, but it's uh, it's been nice the rest of the day. Um, quite a contrast to uh, the last week though, where we've had some really nice weather. Got on my first uh, vest and shorts run last week, and now it's back to the winter gear. Yeah, yeah. I um, it's funny, and I I say the kids were running around. We had a bit of snow here yesterday, and the kids were running around in some in costumes, and there was a little bit of snow, and the sun was shining and. You're going from like minus six in the shade to suddenly, uh, you know, boiling when you're when you're in the sunshine and out of the wind. It's a it's a strange thing, but yeah, don't know how many layers to put on. Don't know how many layers to put on. Well, <clears throat> we've got lots of things to talk about this week. Um, there was um, some um, some lady ran quite fast at a 5k race the other night, so we're going to cover that as well. Um, but I think with tradition, we have to start with. Tweets of the week. Now, for those that aren't familiar with tweets of the week, tweets of the week are where we go through our last three tweets, sum them up, and um, you've got to try and sum it up and hit it perfectly within 60 seconds. Mike ruined it for me but last week by telling me after two years almost of doing this that there is actually a clock running in the top left-hand corner of Skype. It's just destroyed it for me now. So I'm like tweets of the week doping now. I'm looking at that. Um, but I think, uh, Ian, have you got yours lined up? Yeah, mine are ready. I think we should start with you, Ian. So, uh, do you want to time him, uh, Mike? I will indeed. Yeah. You can consult him if he's if he's wrong. Um, cool. Okay, I'm going to leave it in your in. I'm going to leave you in the starter's hands, Ian. Okay. Right. right. Three second countdown. Three, two, one. Off you go. Okay, so the first one of mine was uh, a, a retweet from the BBC. It was the footage of Chris Thompson finishing the GB trials when he won the marathon trial. And uh, I just thought the emotion that he expressed was incredible. And uh, anyone that said one of those sort of transcendent moments in the 
athletic career um, where you've really sort of moved boundaries on that emotion was just expressed and I think a lot of people could uh, associate with that so that was great to see second one was uh, actually a series of tweets um, from Andrew Jones who used to be a physiologist for Paula Radcliffe um, about his marathon training so he's tweeting out information about his program at the moment he's going for a sub three hour at 50 and I think he's planning on doing it in a virtual now but interesting to see the sort of mixture of sort of strength training quality and, and long sessions that he's putting in uh, in his training uh, including some Yazoo 800s I think which is what stimulated um, the initial tweet that I'd seen and then the last one was from someone called George Nassis and he was um, putting out information about a study in general sports sciences about the dose response relationship between VO2 max uh, training um, uh, and the effect on fitness and concluded that repetitions should be done at 100% BVO2 max uh, and two, for more than two minutes and for over 15 minutes per session, which I thought was good advice. That's me. Cool. So when you started, Ian took a two and a half second deep breath before talking and I was like, <laughs> right, he's either nailing this or the wheels are falling off. Well, I can confirm the wheels fell off. <laughs> The 12555. <laughs> I need to change the two tweets. <laughs> you, it's about the third time, I think, where you've used the words and my final tweet, which starts on 60 seconds. <laughs> it's still better than last time, I think. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you haven't lost. That's the best thing about this one. It doesn't mean you haven't lost yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's the good thing about going first. Yeah. You muted yourself, Mark, there. Yeah, they've done it in 45 seconds, Ian, with carbon shoes, but anyway. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Mike, uh, Ian, do you want a time, Mike? Yeah, go on, then. I'll leave you in uh, Ian's capable hands, then. So it's 1.26. And you haven't even started yet. <laughs> <laughs> right, you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. Cool. My first one was an old one of mine I retweeted, which just was confirming again, just please be careful of advice that you get offered, particularly in Facebook social media groups regarding injury. Many people ask a question about how to fix an injury and the advice is well intentioned, but it's often inaccurate. It's, it's someone's anecdotes and personal experiences. For the love of God, if you've got an injury that you want to ask a question about, seek the advice of a professional. Number two is about consolidation weeks. So we're all aware of the benefit of progressive training, but sometimes repeating a week a couple of times and consolidating the previous week's effort is a really good way to maintain progress without stepping up again. And finally was a nice tweet I read about the difference between harmonious and obsessive passion. So that difference between adoring and being pleased during and after an event versus letting that event control you before and after see more and more people fall in for the obsessive passion than i do the harmonious that was pretty good certainly better than me uh, one minute seven seconds got so, it all on to beat that mark yeah okay well to be honest i've just kind of given up caring on this i'm just gonna say what i want to say and i don't care what the time is <laughs> i'm more a participation kind of guy than a competition kind of guy to be honest <clears throat> okay uh, uh, who's gonna time me 
Go on, I've got you. I've got you. Ready? Three, two, one, go. Okay, well, first of all, I'm not going to talk about Beth Potter or carbon shoes, although I put multiple tweets out there. So I'm removing that from the conversation. So the tweets I'm including are, first of all, I put a tweet out about how this proper sports science, proper coaching, and an in-between is just the bullshit zone. This growth of this nonsense where it's usually an app, and it's the secret of the pros, and it's a game changer, and how it pretends to be coaching or pretends to be sports science when it's neither and it is a problem that we must resolve. The second one is we started open water swimming last week. Open water swimming in March, and it was 12 degrees and sunshine. But to be honest, I mean, that's quite cold for Wigan because it's normally glorious here anyway. And the other one I put out was the change in the regulations. As of this Monday, you are actually allowed to, if you're in a cycling club, to cycling groups of 15. But if you're cycling with your friends socially, you can only cycle as six. And that, for me, has caused some confusion because on our club run at the weekend, when we had 10 riders, we had people shouting at us that we had too many riders and they need to know the rules. But the problem is that the rules are too complicated. I think that was good. In my head, I think that was good. Good good is a relative concept. Good, 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 (laughs) good, Good for yourself, definitely. But you've squeezed into silver medal position with 112.4. That is good. That yeah. is, even if yeah. it's relative, 112 is good for me. So what did Ian get again? 125. And what did you get? 107. 107. Must try harder then. I thought you could. You had 12 seconds telling us what you weren't going to say, Mark. Otherwise... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you would have won it without that. But that has to be included, I guess, into the equation, yeah. doesn't it? Um, <clears throat> so, a couple of things. Can I just go back to your tweets of the week, Ian? Can you expand a little bit on that VO, that study you said about VO2 training, you know, how much should be done? What exactly was that again, that piece of research? They're looking at the dose-response relationship. So, um, you know, whether more is better, how much you do in an actual session in terms of how long the intervals are, what intensity you're working at, and also um, how long you actually spend on it in the session. And the, their conclusion was that... Um, you do your interval training at 100% um, VO2 max for repetitions for more than two minutes and and do over 15 minutes worth in the session. I I, I know the, uh, often the references to VO2 max, which is obviously not an easy thing to uh, to determine during um, training, but your velocity at VO2 max is something that is relatively, certainly in comparison to, to your VO2 max, um, easy to estimate i think if you do a six minute flat out time trial the mm. pace that you, the average pace that you manage is meant to be around about your velocity at vo2 max there's quite a lot of work um sort of in the 90s i think there's quite a lot of research in physiology looking at um the benefits of velocity vo2 max training for, for increasing your vo2 max um and uh, and that was one of the conclusions was um was that the six minute time trial is a good estimate of that yeah yeah i think like you said if people are probably running two to three minute intervals pretty hard they're probably running pretty close to that velocity anyway aren't they yeah i mean it's if you're running sort of uh, the general conclusion a lot of that work was if you match your uh, recovery in time to the amount of time that you actually spend at um bbo2 max 
um, and you run your recovery at about half the pace that you run at the velocity of VO2 max, then that should give you the stimulus that you need to, to spend the maximum amount of time at around VO2 max um, during the session. So you can even go down to like a 30 second uh, interval with a 30 second recovery, or you can take it as long as three minutes. And the general advice is that you start with short ones and build up with a maximum of about three by six minutes. Uh, so, sorry, um, six by three minutes, um, which would fit in with what they concluded in that study of being over 15 minutes gives you about 18 minutes to have that um, intensity. And certainly with my training, if you do um, six, loss of three minutes at that, and you are hitting that velocity, that's a pretty hard session. Yeah, yeah. That helps if you're on a track, but you don't have to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was another study just um, that you, you had retweeted or you sent as well the other day, which I was quite interested in. Just talk a bit about that study which had showed the recovery between anaerobic efforts and linked to aerobic fitness. Uh, in that one, they were uh, yeah they were trying to they were looking at the um, the effects of VO2 uh, kinetics, so changing VO2 um, across different um, athletes. I think it was 21 athletes they had it, and uh, they were putting them through a couple of uh, exhaustive protocols, and then looking at how quickly people recovered from the sessions, and then they were linking. They were they found in that study that. Um, that people who were fitter were, were indeed recovering quicker um, from those bouts of exercise. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was fascinating. Just say from a personal point, the reason why I was questioning you on that and sent you a message about it. Is yeah, yeah. It's funny after, you know, you're still kind of learning things even after like 25, 30 years. And, and for, for me, quite interesting, last year, I spent a lot of time last year doing uh, a lot more intervals, shorter, higher power intervals. And there was, a, there was one interval session I was constantly trying to hit were to do um, 400 watts for a minute and then a two minutes recovery and do that 10 times. And I'm not a particularly powerful rider to be fair, but a minute at 400 watts, two minutes recovery, do that 10 times. And I could never do it. Three minutes recovery was fine, but not on a two minute recovery. And last year I was chasing that all the time. And what I was focused on is why am I finding it hard to push this so hard to push 400 watts so I, all my training I geared it around making it easier to push 400 watts so I did lots of high intensity stuff and I was doing 40 second efforts and 30 second efforts at 500 watts and trying to make myself better at pushing power but I still never managed to do the session and still never managed to complete it or even over three or four months and then this year my training has been completely different and from probably September onwards, I spent six months where I did many intervals and all I did was ride ride 200 miles a week on my bike and pretty much just do that. And I only started doing intervals eight weeks ago and then that session that I couldn't do last year, I nailed it straight away. And it doesn't make sense that I've done no high intensity work, but now I can do that high intensity session. But then of course it does make perfect sense because I could always push the power, I just couldn't recover in the two minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, the difference is how quick I recover after a hard effort. And my recovery rate is far, far quicker. And even we've been doing local time trials and little lumpy, lumpy races and stuff like that, just between ourselves, like little virtual time trials, how much better the times are than last year. And I realized that last year I spent so much time working on higher power. I think my aerobic fitness was worse. And, and, and a lot of bike races... It's not necessarily what you can push, 
It's whether you can push and recover and go again and then go again and then go again. You know, so it's funny how you kind of how you interpret what is it I need to do to complete that session. So with an interval session, you may be able to push the power for the first rep. And if you can, then maybe the problem is you just can't recover in time. So I found that fascinating just to they were basically saying if you're aerobically fit, what you'll find is your recovery is so much quicker between intervals that that's the deciding factor, not necessarily how much power you can push for the interval. And then ultimately, probably the the, ben- you know, the greater benefit you'll get from that session because you're maintaining that quality throughout, aren't you? Um, exactly. One of the things that we discussed when you messaged me was, uh, I think when this had been um, posted out by someone over Twitter, they'd referred to aerobic base, hadn't they? Um, yeah. As big, whereas when you look at the actual study, that what they've actually measured is aerobic fitness. And actually, I noticed in the comments, someone else has actually picked up on that as well and saying, aerobic base I don't, I don't know uh, any reference or values or measurements associated with that term so how you would measure that but i think in in our minds and when we often have these discussions um uh, we're thinking about aerobic base in terms of how much of that base training you do to develop that um, aerobic base isn't it so yeah. i think if you're looking at that in a study you'd have to be looking at people's training history and the amount of sort of training that they've done it ties in with some of the things that we discussed um in the last podcast yeah. yeah but that is interesting because i guess that for me i tried to explain this to a couple of people that were coaches saying that there's your, your explanation for how does aerobic training how will a, a stronger aerobic base aerobic foundation but how will that help me in a high intensity interval session and it's because your recovery is so much quicker that you're almost fresh on every single interval yeah and it's half the problem, you know, for, for people, isn't it? It's the recovery, not actually what they're pushing. So, yeah, yeah. Um, on your on your tweets of the week there, Mike, um, you mentioned about people just asking advice on Twitter and Facebook. And I think this is probably one of the uh, the issues now, isn't it, with, with, with society that you can ask advice and, you know, there are, we won't name, I won't name any specifically, but there are lots of different Twitter groups and stuff like that where you can go on and ask and say to people, seem to have suffered from an Achilles rupture what's your advice you know <laughs> you know has anybody got any uh, any uh, home-based surgery methods and you'll get a whole array of responses usually foam roller and it works whatever it is that'll solve it but uh, I guess it's uh, you know with your background you're seeing this more and more commonly people going to social media for advice rather than going to professionals yeah and I, and I understand why we know psychologically then there's the fear whether you're going to go and see a professional and they're going to tell you to stop. So um, what I'm looking for is that reinforcement and confirmation that it's okay to keep, it's not as bad as it could be and I can still do the things I want to do. What you need to understand is if you find the right therapist who, who understands the nature of the endurance athlete, then often they won't tell you to stop unless it's absolutely necessary. Most of us will try to modify what it is we need you to do. If you're a triathlete, it's easy to navigate the other things you can do whilst we're trying to get you on the right path. But most of us will try to modify rather than stop. So that shouldn't be a barrier for you. Um, but what you get sometimes is just this this lack of context and stuff where, where you don't, you know, the one the one that particularly prompted me to post that was about a bone stress injury. Now, bone stress injuries fall on such a wide spectrum right up to stress fracture, have so many contextual factors to do with age, training, history, health, 
whether you're male, female, age, and and things like stage of your life, that that simply no two bone stress injuries are the same. So when someone is saying, I think I've got a bone stress injury, what was what's your ideas? What have you had done? You've got potentially a female with a real high risk problem that could be catastrophic being given a treatment plan by someone who was who was a robust young male that this thing was far less suspicious and, and, and serious in nature. But likewise, even with bone stress injuries, when you give the Achilles example, that's that's less of a variation, perhaps. But with a bone stress injury, then there are certain bones that have better or worse blood flow and blood supply. And some can be really serious problems and some aren't anything we should worry about. So even to give an answer of what you've had done without stating which bone you had the bone stress injury in, your age, your training factors, your nutrition status, it, it just you just cut. It's like saying, how do you fix a Ford Escort if you drive a Porsche? You know it, what what I would do to fix those two cars is completely different. Um, so so that's the key, and, and I'm pretty certain that everyone answering is well-intentioned and means well and is trying to be helpful to that person it's the person asking the question is the person i'm trying to get across to is is because within that answer there are people saying you should really see a therapist or well this is what i had done for me but don't take it for me this was relative to my injury and it may not be the same for you so there is some context given but there are others who categorically list what they had done to them thinking that it'll apply to someone else. And, um, and much of the time, you know, yeah, if we're talking an ankle sprain, a muscle strain, then the severity and risk is far less and the, the diversity in treatment is probably far less. But um, certainly when it comes to stress fractures, bone stress injuries, and some things that may affect maybe female athletes, then you just need to be cautious of, of what advice you want to give and be receive and act on. And um, and just for, for the there's enough of us now that are easily accessible that you can drop a message to um, and, and get at least a signpost into some sensible advice. Yeah, yeah. I guess I mean I, I still find it a bit strange that I still I still think there are people who won't pay for you know for physio advice. They just won't pay for it. And I don't know whether that's like a kind of an ingrained thing because the NHS has always been free or what. I don't know, but I mean, I know these are people who will pay thousands of pounds for carbon wheels and vapor flies and whatever else. But, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I know of one person specifically who will spend a lot of money on stuff, but will sit on a waiting list for an NHS physio for a couple of months. And you just think, what? Just spend the money. My God, it's nothing compared to what you spend on bike wheels. But I think there is that sometimes. But I also think what you get with a lot of these people is that they might actually be seeing a therapist and they've been and seen someone and been given advice and I think when they go on social media, they're just really hoping that everybody's going to reply and say, it was fine with me and it cleared up. And, you know, they're looking for some reassurance that it will be OK. Yeah. You know? I think that's what we want from social media. Yeah. But again, but say that, just say that, say, you know, I've got an injury. I'm seeing someone. Anyone else suffer this? How long did it take to get better? I just want to want a bit of a boost. I would agree with you about the free stuff. Um, I think as well as what I mentioned earlier about the. Um, being the fear of being told you can't do something you need to pull out of a race etc but i think the third thing and it's something that we battle with our side of the fence it's very hard 
to quantify the benefit therapists will make for you. I'll buy a wheel because it's proven to make me 5% faster. I'll buy these shoes because they make me 4% faster. If it's such a science and an art therapy that we can't really ever say, go and see a therapist, they'll make you 20% better. If we could validate those claims, I think, you know, sports psychology is another area that feels the same. You can't quantify what those could tangibly do for you to make you better. And therefore, they become much harder cells and less sexy cells. And if we ever could, and we never will be able to because everyone's so different, um, if you could do that, you might end up finding it far easier to, to attract patients to come and get help from you. But um, but I think those are the three big things that that uh, that, that stick at Sports Injury Fix. We, we interviewed over 10,000 runners between 2018 and 2019. And one of the questions we asked them was, what what is the biggest barrier to you seeking treatment? And 80% of them had said... I think the athlete's going to, the, the therapist's going to tell me to stop. So that would still be the big one for me. They probably know in the Facebook groups that those people will empathize with them and probably won't say, oh, you better stop. You know, there's still that bravado of, oh, you know, my leg fell off and I ran through it. That, that They still have that attitude. So, so they're looking for that validation to sometimes, and I speak to athletes, you know, they know they're doing the wrong things. Yeah. But when someone validates that it's okay to do the wrong things, then cool, I'm okay. I'll just, I'll just push on. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. I spoke to someone on the bike this weekend, and I spoke to someone on the bike, and they, they, they had an ankle injury, which was stopping them running and kind of running out of time for a big event. And they'd seen someone, and uh, but they'd been like for free and uh, had some advice, but it wasn't really clearing up and stuff. And I just said, mate, you know. You, so many weeks to your big race now. Just go and get it sorted. You know, bite the bullet. Just go and get it looked at. And it, and and interesting, he said to me, you know, if someone could tell me that it actually wasn't going to do any damage. You're quite happily run through the pain. So yeah, well, that's your problem, isn't it? You know, <laughs> just you know, let's not let's not do that just yet. Why don't you just go and see someone? But interesting, we also had a conversation about um, NSAIDs, about non-steroidal anti non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs. And this is something I just want to bring up because a couple of weeks ago you put a tweet out. I think you put a tweet or a Facebook post to saw, and it was something I thought it was a really valid thing to talk about. Is that the number of people still taking? And by NSAIDs, we're talking ibuprofen is the main one, isn't it? Naproxen is it? That's a little bit stronger, probably the common one. Again, yeah. so ibuprofen and naproxen probably the most yeah. common you'd two. Throw, so, you'd, you'd throw diclofenac in. You'd throw Advil if you're over in the US. Um, yeah. There's lo- lots of the names of them, but ibuprofen and naproxen will be the, the common ones in the UK. Yeah. So just talk about those because it's people still, you know, not. I mean, we probably know that what 15, 20 years ago, a lot of runners were kind of taking them like sweets, weren't they? I know on the Feldman scene, because a lot of damage from descending and the eccentric braking of running downhill, people were taking NSAIDs yeah. like ibuprofen, like no tomorrow. And, yeah. and, you always get the common thing, make sure you take them with food because they can mess up your stomach lining. But it's not just your stomach lining, is it? They can potentially be a lot more damaging. Yeah. So what we what we started to see, as you say, about that time scale of, of a decade and a half, two decades ago, was what we referred to as this prophylactic use of non-steroidals. So people taking them to reduce problems or prevent problems rather than in a reactionary way to, to fix things like you would with a traditional medicine. So particularly in long distance races, people started to take 
paracetamol. We used to see it in Ironman. Halfway through the bike leg, people would start popping some some analgesics so that the pain was less when it came to the run and stuff. Now, this myth has perpetuated and it's remained. And the reason I've started posting it more is I've seen a huge increase in this in single stage ultra runs. I am seeing it less so in, in, in triathlon. There was a surge of awareness last year. The World Champs last year were sponsored, I think, when they buy a, a non-steroidal company out in the US. So, so that raised ethical awareness from people that it was a really bad thing. So I've seen it creep into the single stage ultra runs. But the thing that really frightens me is the lack of awareness from athletes of the potential dangers of doing it. So that's why I regularly sort of repost the same stuff. So number one, and I think this is the most important thing, we have no evidence that it's an effective ergogenic aid. So it doesn't even improve your performance if you take it. It doesn't delay fatigue and pain and all the things people think they're doing. But what it does have is some serious risks of some potentially dangerous problems happening from um, acute kidney injuries to heart attacks, strokes, reduced stress fracture healing, uh, negative consequences on collagen and bone formation, um, and then renal disease, this kidney disease being the big one. So there's got some potentially fatal problems if you take this. The key thing with it is education. And, and, and the thing I posted about, which is, is what I regularly now remind people of, is a position stand. So any of the big organizations out there that have opinions and, and, and skin in the game with these things come out with position stands, which effectively to the layperson are a statement that summarizes their beliefs at a particular time. And then these position stands get updated. So in 2019, the International Society of Sports Nutrition issued a position stand regarding nutritional considerations for single stage ultramarathon training and racing. And what they stated was um, a prevalence of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug use amongst ultramarathon runners as high as 60%, with 70% of runners using them during a race. Given the equivocal evidence for efficacy and the acute contraindications, then it strongly they strongly discouraged the use of it during ultramarathons. Importantly, and this was the frightening number, up to 93% of endurance runners were naive to the possible contraindications of the use of NSAIDs, and they indicated a, an absolute need for greater education in this respect. So they thereby recommended that race organisers discouraged NSAID use. Now, non-NSAIDs, so things like paracetamol, do appear to be better tolerated, but again, nevertheless, concealing the symptoms of pain might facilitate and or exacerbate injury and therefore caution is urged against frivolous and systematic use of analgesics to mask symptoms the kicker at the end which is is up ian street is that finally there's an evidence that up to 15 percent of legal supplements for non-steroidal use may actually be uh, inadvertently or deliberately contaminated with illegal substances which would result in a positive test for a banned substance so even if you miss the health risks one you're not going to perform any better but two 
potentially, depending on your category and your race ability, you could end up having no benefit, risking your health and failing a, a substance test. So um, so my regular systematic repush of that message is more for that education bit that really if you're in clubs or groups or social circumstances where some people who were around back in the day are still advocating that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to prophylactically mask the symptoms of pain are a good idea, then we really, as, as a cohort of athletes and coaches, should be pushing the message that it's not a good idea and you need to get away from it. Mm, well, um, uh, Ian, of course, this is right up your street with your expertise in uh, anti-doping and so on. And uh, what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, no, there's some really good points there. And um, one or two things that I can hopefully add to that, but um, I think Mike's covered a lot of the uh, key points there. But um, an interesting one is in terms of the harms as well, is that quite often the damage can be asymptomatic. So you can be doing harm without actually knowing you're doing it, which I think is an important one for people. People assume I've used them, I've not noticed anything, you know, they're not any effect on me, so it's okay. But you could be doing some, uh, some of these harms can be happening in the background. Um, that you need to be aware of. Um, uh, I think it's interesting that 30% of adverse drug reactions that are admissions to hospital come from NSAIDs. Um, so that that just highlights, you know, um, how yeah how many people are experiencing adverse effects of these type of drugs. A couple of the studies that have looked at um, use within uh, endurance sport, which ties in with uh, or reasonably well with the values that um, Mike mentioned there. There was a, quite a small study in 2017 of London Marathon runners, 109 runners, about NSAID use, and 46% um, of them said that they planned to use them for the marathon. So um, uh, although it's longer events, there's another study by Rosenblum et al. in 2020, and this was park runners, um, and more than 50% said that they'd used before uh, a run or a race. Um, interestingly, the longer the event, the more likely people were to be using them, which ties in with sort of the association with ultramarathon use. But it's not just ultramarathon use that people uh, will use them for as well. But that, uh, and then uh, actually a study that we're in the, uh, I'm involved with at the moment is um, in review. That's doing a scope and review of all the research of, of non-medical and extra medical use of uh, NSAIDs. So it's not just in sport. And we found 66 studies that have looked at this, but 14 of them were in sport. And that uh, across those 14 studies, there was widespread evidence of that prophylactic use that uh, Mike mentioned. Um, and that was both in team and endurance sports has been a particular issue. And I think there are some sort of psychological factors that, that link in there potentially. I think people, you know, someone's initial use might be driven by some of the sort of norms around it. If you, you know, obviously possibly online in social media, but it could be the groups that you train with. If this is a normal behavior, then it feels as though it's safe because it's, you know, the group effect. But also I think if someone initially uses it in an event and then they perform particularly well, they, they can start to see it as being part of their routine and part of their race routine is that, and then that just becomes a normal part of it. And something that the, fearful of not doing because they think it has benefited. So they're making that psychological link between the use and a performance. Probably when, uh, you know, as, the, as Mike says, the research evidence shows no link between 
you know, a benefit for performance and, uh, and prophylactic use. But if people are making that link in their own mind, then it can automatically become part of their um, race routine. So, and that can be quite difficult to sort of break that chain. And then I think on that last point there in terms of contamination, and I think there's that issue with contamination and that extends to, to supplement use as well. And that sort of 15, you know, up to 15-20% is a common value when, when we look at um, sports supplements in terms of their contamination with um, prohibited substances. And uh, one way you can try and, you can't make yourself completely immune to it, but um, using things that have been tested through informed sport and then check, checking the batch numbers is a good piece of advice around that. Um, because obviously the informed sport program tests um, batches of uh, substances or, or supplements and then they'll publish on the website which ones have been uh, approved for which batches so you can check the, ba check the batch codes of the ones that you're using against the ones on the website but um, that is definitely a, a, a significant issue and continues to be in terms of that contamination. Um, so yeah, if you review the, the evidence as a whole I think th there's lots of evidence against the use. We can understand why people end up using them and there is I think I think we see this a lot across a lot of things where there's a logical link where it makes sense that something should be the fact the case that you see a lot of people doing it um, but it's just I think it's making people aware and like Mike says in terms of education trying to educate people to base their behaviors on things that are actually you know, proven through evidence where there's actual evidence base for it and, and questioning sometimes what other people are recommending that you do. Um, because the, the actual evidence when you look at the research is definitely against the use of um, the prophylactic use of NSAIDs um, in endurance sport or any sport for that matter, I think. Mm, yeah, it's funny, we seem, seem to have the same conversation like we're having, what, five, 10 years ago? Because I, mean, I, I seem to remember it being a thing then and it's how it said that the awareness is still the naivety, you know, it's uh, it's strange, isn't it? And yeah, then of course, was it, who, who was it sponsored Kona last year, the Hawaii Ironman World Championships? It was, it was yeah. a, it wasn't a, a, like a anti-inflammatory thing, was it? it like, was, yeah, it was a US brand, I, I don't know, I can't remember the brand, but I do remember uh, tweeting about it at the time to say that that was uh, highly questionable in terms of um, having them as a major sponsor. And I'm sure their advert was, you know, it led you to kind of get up and keep yeah. training each day or something like that. <laughs> you know, just take, take yeah. more ibuprofen, you'll be right. You'll be all right for something this afternoon. Yeah, yeah. very strange. But, mm, well, um, moving on then, <clears throat> got some other things to talk about. And we should talk about the uh, great running news. Um, and if we should talk first, if we're doing them in order of how they happen, we should talk about the marathon trials. You know, so, and and Chris Thompson uh, and uh, qualifying for uh, for the Olympic marathon, and of course, um, and of course, Beth, Beth Potter and the uh, new well, whether it's ratified or not, the new uh, world best for 5K on road. Um, Ian, I know, did you watch the whole of the marathon trials? So it was on the Friday, wasn't it? And I was I was working on the Friday, so I was uh, I, I managed to sort of dip in and watch about 10 minutes of it. Um, around about an hour and 30 minutes in um, and it looked as though it was getting interesting um, I think it was the point where Chris Thompson had just regained the front group but then I had a, I had a meeting I couldn't watch any more so what I actually did was I paused it 
um, on the player. And then when I was having lunch, I watched it as if I was watching it live. So I did manage to watch the rest of the race without knowing the result. And then on the weekend, I did watch the full race. And it, I, uh, honestly, I think it's the uh, the most engaged I've been in watching it in a marathon race for quite a long time. And I was, you know, I watched religiously every year um, the big major marathons. But I think I enjoyed that one uh, probably more um, than anyhow for a long time. And I think a, a lot of it was, uh, you know, I'm quite a fan of Chris Thompson's, have been for a, a lot of his career. And I think a lot of us can... Um, yeah, not that me personally, I've suffered, I've been quite lucky in terms of injuries, but we all know a lot of athletes who have had serious injuries and, and struggle to come back, then come back and then they get injured again. And you've kind of, everyone who knows the story with Chris Thompson, but sees that he keeps coming back and and that there is real talent there. And I think I remember when he got the European silver medal behind Mo Farah, um, and I think his first GB vest was actually the first year that I ever ran a marathon. So that's how long he's been around. I think 1998, um, which shows how long he's been in the sport at the highest level. And I think I, I always admire and appreciate anyone that stays around in in the sport for that long at, at their highest level. You know, whatever their highest level might be, because we all see a lot of people drift into endurance sport and, and leave it, and it's very difficult and there aren't too many athletes who stay around at their top level for a long time uh, and Chris Thompson's managed to do that obviously he's had injuries along the way so I think because it was Chris Thompson and he wasn't one of the outright favourites it was just great to see and also I'm always an advocate of running your own race and having the confidence to run your own race and he demonstrated that and um, I think we saw one of the uh, weaknesses we often see in commentators of marathons it's usually uh, Brendan Foster and Steve Crammer who write people off when they, they're no longer with the front group. Uh, and time and time again, ignore the fact that people could be just running their own race, which if you look at the actual splits for Chris Thompson, which is what he did, and he took that decision, they're going too quick. It, if they can keep that going, it's too quick for me. This is the pace I need to run. And he kept running it and it brought him back in and then he, he went away from him. So, yeah, there was lots of things, I think, for me to enjoy from it and really enjoyed watching it. Yeah, it was odd because they, they cut to the ladies' race and they're watching the ladies' race and uh, there's like a decisive break there. And then they cut back to the men's race and suddenly Chris Thompson was at the front of the race. So where's he come from? But, uh, and, and the, you know, and it was because, like you said, the other two had slowed down dramatically rather than him speeding up, wasn't it? Yeah. But, it's, uh, yeah, it was. And I think there's a lot of stuff, you know, going on. I don't know if it's just some, with live streaming of stuff. I mean, even like, you know, the, the podium 5Ks that, Beth Potter did, and there's, there was a Fast 5K actually last night. There was a that Steve Cram's company organised a, a Fast 5K in Wigan, and the live streaming of these kind of races on on social media, and then the, the, the you know watching the marathon trials, and it does feel a little bit like the kind of that top end and that elite and those faster runners. There is more of it starting to you know more interest in it, and I think um, you know I I. <laughs> There's been a, a growth, a mass growth in running of the kind of mass participation boom. And some would argue there's been a detraction away from the kind of top end. But I think there's been a lot of kind of focus on the top end recently, watching live stuff, whether it's on social media, whether it's on the TV. And it's, and it's getting you know, it's really exciting, a really strong domestic racing. And it's been, a, it's been brilliant. There's loads of stuff to watch. Maybe that's because of the, 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 cause of the lockdown thing as well, more live streaming than normal, I don't know. But there just seems to have been a lot more interest in it recently than I remember there being in the last couple of years. 
One of the first notes I'd written down when we were talking about it was what a good event it was. Yeah. Where, where they did it in Kew Gardens, the way they segregated the Olympic qualifiers rather than it being part of another race. I think that has added to it becoming a more watchable event. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. And then, of course, we had uh, Beth Potter um, at the um, Podium 5K, locally, not far from us, up near Pendle. It's only uh, about a 20-minute drive from where I am. And uh, quite a few lads, I know, were actually up there running. And, uh, of course, setting what is potentially going to be a, a world's best. And uh, just going back to the Chris Thompson thing first, out of interest, um, um, you know, uh, Ian, we were talking earlier about Chris Thompson, who is, of course, sponsored by On Running, isn't he? Yeah. But um, he didn't uh, run in On Running Shoes on the day. Yeah, I think there's, this story relates to some of the things that we we saw early on with the uh, with, obviously with the Nike vapor flies and when the Nike shoes came out and a few of the other manufacturers are, are catching up now. But I think uh, on running have got a, a new model that's coming out in a few in a month or two, but it's not quite there yet. Um, so they actually they allowed him um, to to use the Nike shoe, but to black it out so that he didn't uh, give them any um, advertising any sponsorship. Um, but yeah, so I think a lot of the early stories, athletes were choosing to use the night shoe because the advantage, and actually some lost the sponsorship deals as a result a result of that, um, because obviously it wasn't approved or sanctioned by their, their sponsors to do that. But um, I just thought, yeah, it was a bit unfortunate that some of the media actually focused on as that being a major story because you can wear whatever shoe you like. If you don't, and I'm sure everyone else that all the others that did go off quicker and went ahead of him will have been wearing a carbon plated shoe with a similar advantage to what he was wearing. And they still slowed down. You can wear whatever shoe you like in a marathon and it's not going to stop you blowing up if you go off too fast. Mm. Um, and he executed a brilliant race. And uh, it's just a shame that the, some of the media coverage didn't focus on that. Instead, it focused on what they tried to make out was an issue with the sponsor, but it was approved by his sponsor anyway. Um, so they, they were absolutely okay with him doing it. But again, it, it, it seems to be that they think that's a, a better headline to catch people uh, and by, by seemingly discrediting people's performances, um, which yeah. seems to share to me. Yeah. How, how many marathons has Chris Thompson done before? Was that his second marathon? Uh, I, th- I think he's done a few more. I think he's maybe around sort of three or four. Um, he, he ran the elite only one at uh, London last year in 213. Um, he's run 211 before. That was his PB. So yeah, I think he's done. I think he's done three or four. Yeah. Um, that was another London. I think was the uh, was the 211 one. But obviously a, a full London marathon, not the not the loop one from last October. But yeah, he's he's, he's done three or four um, in the past. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think everybody said everybody likes that battle in underdog, don't they? So I think he you know got a really positive response in the media. Um, and of course, Mike, uh, the big news is the potential it's ratified, uh, potential new world best 5K for Beth Potter. What about that? Yeah, that's no, just something else. That speed. Say, so there's someone. I think it was on one of your posts, one of your tweets. Someone had commented that. Um, it was five minutes faster than the time he was chuffed with earlier that day. And most of us would be quite happy with sub 20. And yeah. to go that fast is is just uh, literally lightning. And the photo when she finished, I really liked, where you can see her genuine surprise at her own performance. 
Um, I think she's famously quoted it saying she thought the uh, when she saw the clock with the K to go, she thought the clock was wrong. Yeah. And um, I know um, Alex Hutchinson, when he talks about some of his PBs, was someone lied to him about the time when he was a track athlete that he was the clock was um, slower than it was to 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 trick him into performing better. But um, as as with always, the uh, the debate comes around, and, and you mentioned it before we started. I'm not going to steal your thunder on it, but people trying to divert from just saying well done to people. My I've got a really interesting perspective on both of those performances, actually, because um, I mentioned in my tweets of the week about harmonious versus obsessive passion. And I might be completely off the mark here. This is my speculation. But um, we know famously that Chris had recently become a dad. And obviously, Beth had made the switch from running to triathlon and had now come back for this 5K. I just wonder in both separate incidents whether perspective had changed, the pressure was almost off them. Now, you can't obviously just relax, turn up with a different perspective and perform, as Ian said, the training and the groundwork needs to be put in, coupled and allied with that ability to perform at that elite level. But I just do wonder sometimes, we, 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 we talk often enough about people who buckle under pressure, but if you can switch the focus of that pressure and just do it for fun or for self-reward, obviously there's tangible external rewards in both of those events. But I just wonder whether both of them ran a little bit free for themselves those days and ultimately got the performance that their training had, had suggested they could get. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I just, it's interesting as well how I think I think there's a difference in how both were perceived. So I would say, um, I mean, I know there are people on both sides of the camp, but I would say Chris Thompson's uh, qualifying for the marathon was a lot more positively received than Beth Potter potentially setting a new world best. There was very, very few negative comments about Chris Thompson. I certainly didn't anybody say that, you know, for him to come back from injury at 39 and run two hours 10, it's only the shoes or he must be on performance enhancing drugs. I didn't really see any of that. I saw a bit of chat about the shoes, but generally just very, very positive. 39 year old bloke, just had a baby. Lots of positive stuff. Uh, you know, more, a lot of positive stuff for Beth as well, but a lot more negative stuff, I would say. Maybe I was just looking in the wrong places here, Ian, but I don't know what what's your thoughts on that. No, I agree. I, I think it was the Telegraph. You know, uh, someone correct me if I'm wrong. Ran the story on uh, on Chris Thompson about the uh, sponsorship and, and the blacking out of the shoes. But the majority of the coverage was like, like what I um, retweeted from the BBC was incredibly positive, um, uh, and rightly so. Um, and that's definitely not been the case with uh, Potter. And, um, I think there's a couple of things in um, in both performances that. A lot of the athletes, I think in terms of the athletic population, and you look at when it's the actual athletes talking about them, most people are very positive about it, or at least people are um, athletes currently. Um, and I think there's a couple of things there, and Mike mentioned it there in terms of that capturing it in that image, and I think it was capturing it in the finish line for Chris Thompson, was that element of surprise. And I mentioned earlier in the tweets of the week in terms of those transcendent performances, that those times when you do something where you surprise yourself, where even you weren't expecting it, 
are those handful of moments in what might be 20, 30 years of, of endurance sport that is what makes all the rest of the training worthwhile. And, and that feeling is all about that um, um, being engaged in the activity for the right reasons. They are completely intrinsic. None of those feelings or thoughts at that time about those extrinsic rewards that you get from it. Um, and Mike mentioned it there in terms of those differences between different types of passion and that all links into people's motivations and for why they're engaged in it. But I think there was an element of the pressure being off. I think that the reason the pressure off was off was maybe slightly different across them, but you could certainly see that they were both in a um, situation where they felt um, more at ease. And I think obviously the week that Chris Thompson had had just becoming a dad probably took a lot of the pressure off him because it was just like, there's no expectation now. I can just go out and run free. And I think with Beth Potter, I think she was quite a last minute entry and she couldn't decide which race she was going to enter. So it was just like, well, I'll just give it a punt and and and, uh, uh, and see how I get on. Uh, and I think we've, again, that's something else that we can all relate to is that, it, is that moment where we might be in good shape, but for whatever reason, there's a, sometimes we can, help get ourselves in a situation where we um, take the pressure off ourselves. But quite often it's a combination of events that make that much easier. So it might be that you're coming back from injury or other things are going on in your life that take the pressure off you in that particular situation. And it's no surprise that often that's where we see those really good performances when people you know, just find themselves in that uh, perfect situation. But in terms of the, the media focus, yeah, it's just, it is a real shame. And I think, it's hard to put a finger on the, the reason why Beth Potter has got so much more uh, negative press. I think possibly it's because it was a world best performance, um, but possibly because it was so much better um, than her previous performances. But I think there is there are a group of people um, who are, are quite vehement in terms of being negative um, about uh, the carbon plated shoes. And I think, um, and a lot of the people, certainly in terms of the athletes, are often people that were are now past the best or maybe ex-athletes who are no longer in a position to actually use them and get the benefit from them and maybe feel as though it's, uh, I might be uh, quite contentious here, but it's undermining or discrediting uh, or shining a weaker light on the, the quality of their performances when they were athletes because uh, because you still see people saying, well, we, we can't, times don't mean anything anymore and they're meaningless, but they are, they're not meaningless and they're meaningful because you're still comparing the athlete to the other athletes at the same time now. And though these shoes have been around for quite a while now, but we're still hearing the same arguments. Um, the shoes have been around for quite a while and she still beat that world record uh, in what, unless there's something particularly magical about that pair of shoes that then takes them another 45 seconds beyond, which I, I very much doubt is going to be the case, um, other ones available. Um, so I, I think, you know, they are meaningful, the performances, because other people on the start line have all got access to them. I think there was something two or three years ago where there was a situation where some athletes were using them to, to get qualifying times for Olympics, to compete in Olympics. Other athletes didn't have access. There's a real ethical issue there. But I think these have been around and people have had access to them for long enough now um, and we're starting to understand what, what those performances mean in terms of the, the times. And I, I think what it also means, and, and I, there's some evidence for this, that 
actually shoes were probably having more of an effect 10 years ago than we realized as well. And some of the earlier Adidas shoes, the, the um, Boost technology, they've been shown to have a 1% impact on performance. So they've probably determined some of the outcomes of races in the past as well. Um, so I don't think it's quite so clear cut that the shoes are having an effect now and they were in the past. But um, obviously, people can be quite influential that are having these viewpoints and it can uh, it can pull other people along into them. But I think as a sport, I don't think we do ourselves any favours to keep um, repeating these arguments. I think we need to accept now and move on because a lot of the people that actually draw the wrong conclusions about all this are the people that don't really engage deeply in it and it's the general public and they're looking at the sport and thinking that these performances don't mean anything anymore now which is just not true and not accurate and it's discrediting some incredible performances and you know there's, there's no one can convince me that that wasn't an incredible run regardless of what uh, what shoes she was wearing yeah yeah absolutely and you know i mean I, i've been having this conversation recently with, with a, a few people on I'm trying my best not to get too drawn in on social media and failing miserably. But <clears throat> when people are speaking to me and saying, um, are you blind to the impact that these shoes are having? So, no, I'm not blind. And I know that the shoes do enhance performance, certainly in some people, not in others. And I know some studies have shown that. And I think there's one, I mean, I think I read one even like a year or two ago that they did in Australia. And, and it, it was based on a, it was on a treadmill to be fair, and not on the road. And but I remember, you know, there has been research done which shows that some people don't benefit, some people do, some people benefit more more than others. And I think is there something based on whether you're four foot and heel striking? And I've heard all of this kind of stuff, and I don't know enough about it to, to, to speak in depth about it. But we know that some people benefit more than others, and some people don't benefit at all. Okay, and I get that the shoes are beneficial. But what I have an issue with is then just focusing on that and not accepting that something else may also have attributed to that performance. So if it's a 40-odd second improvement in personal best, it's just the shoes. That's it. It's 40-odd seconds and it's the shoes. You know, there's no question that it could be 5 or 10 seconds from the shoes and 30 seconds from a change in training routine, a change in coach, environment, you know, whatever it is. And she has gone through you know, made changes recently, she's moved to Leeds and all, you know, all of those kind of things. And it's, and just having, a, a, you know, being a purple patch and being at that age where you, you're in a purple patch in your fitness, but it's like none of that can be taken into account. No, it just has to be the shoes, just the shoes. And we can't consider it could be possibly anything else could be contributing. Yeah, drugs, that's the only other thing we can we can say might be contributing drugs. Right, so, and, and some for me, just some of the arguments don't stack up. You know, like we said, um, that all the athletes in the world now have access to those shoes. So if you set the fastest time in the world, you're still the fastest runner in the world because everybody else has access to those shoes. And then the reply to that could be, yeah, but some people benefit more from those shoes than others. Or, you know, for the people who want to sound technical, they use the term responders and non-responders. There are responders and there are non-responders. But that doesn't stack up either. So are we saying that, that Beth must have been a super responder and none of the other 30, 40, 50 women in the world ranked ahead of her, none of those happen to be responders? It doesn't stack up. And it's just, I'm not blind to the benefit of the shoes, but I'm tired of the complete ignorance towards any effort by the athlete. 
And if you're an athlete, that's who I feel worse for, because it's not their fault these shoes are now on the scene. And I just feel the message to the athlete is, you're just a mediocre runner without those shoes. You haven't achieved anything. The shoes have achieved it. You know, you are nothing without those shoes. And I just think that's just an awful message to, to be giving to the runners, you know? I mean, you, you look at some of the athletes that are involved in being quite negative about it, and you ask them, well, why did you wear a 180-gram racer when you were entering a race, but a 300-gram shoe when you were training? Did you not expect that that was giving you some performance benefit? But, you know, you look at any other element of, uh, you know, anyone knows anything about endurance performance, it's a confluence of many different factors in any one performance. And the shoe is obviously just one of those. And you isolate any one of those other things and you'll find that every person has an individual response to it. Gels that people use, the drinks that they take during the race, some athletes to get more of a benefit than someone else. So should we take those out so you can have them? Interval training, some people respond better to certain sessions than other people. You can't isolate that. You know, you've got a whole range of different factors that are influencing people's performance that everyone is having an individual response to but that seems to be an issue for shoes but not for anything else yeah Um, that's just that's something we have to accept when we get involved in uh, endurance boys that there's going to be a lot of factors that influence our performance some are within our control some of them are not uh, and ultimately our performance on any given day will be a result of all of those factors and the shoe is just one of those but I think by making a big issue out of this um it's allowing a lot of people to draw conclusions that this is a bigger factor than it really is yeah uh, mike do you want to come in on this because i'm just about to start ranting here uh, no I, I i'll i'll jump in and i'll clear the path for you but um, my, my the only thing i think here as well is um to acknowledge that so many people these you know for every hundred people who comment negatively is one or two maybe really informed on the subject there's so much hearsay now where people just they snap up headlines and sound bites that they've heard someone else say without really fully understanding that bigger picture. So they'll make judgments and calls with limited evidence. We see it in everything these days, but particularly with with the shoe debate. So um, so if you are someone who's, who's unsure what you should say or has said something, then maybe just take stock for a minute and think, don't really understand what I've just commented on there. Am I really saying an informed uh, comment or am I just oh well someone else said that so I say it as well um, because you know you, you, you Ian's said it perfectly that there's so many factors that go into the person inside that shoe um, you know we talk all the time about marginal gains and, and whether the 5% is worth chasing only if you've got the 95% nailed first most of these guys have nailed their 95% so yeah. they stick the shoe on and it makes a difference potentially yeah but it makes the, the finite difference the, that little bit at the end um not the big stuff first you know i'm sure you you can't stick a learner driver in a formula one car and expect them to do brilliant things will yeah. they be faster yes but they will get better as they become a better driver to drive that car the shoe debates the same yeah yeah and, and the flow is yours yeah well <laughs> yeah yeah but I, did, I feel I can go around in circles a little bit with it because like you just said then with the, with the training and the athletes doing all the training and what I see a lot of again is people saying, yeah, but all of the athletes train like that. They all train really hard, but they all don't see a, suddenly, a sudden 40 second jump in their, in their improvement. But if they're, 
you know, so what's I don't think all athletes are training the same. I don't think you can necessarily just say they're all training hard. You know, everybody's doing the same training and hard training hasn't just been invented in 2020. All athletes do train hard to a certain extent. But if we take the top 30 marathon runners in the world and make them run in a normal pair of shoes that don't have carbon plates in them and put them all on a start line, they won't all finish together. They won't finish together. So you can't just say, yeah, but all athletes are training the same. So it's the shoes that's making the difference. It's not. They're not all training the same. Whatever shoes they're running in, some of them will make leaps and some of them some of them won't. And I just think that the, my issue is how I just think this in particular has been treated unfairly. And I don't know if it's because of a previous personal best or specifically because it's a, a world record probably. And I think it's probably because it is more a world a world best, is it called, when it's on road rather than a world record. I think because it's a world best, that's particularly why it's received attention. And I think the bottom line is you, you've got to treat everyone equally. So I'm going to get an example like Tim Hutchings, who is a um, former international runner, commentates on, does he commentate on Eurosport, stuff like that? I think he's a Eurosport commentator. And he certainly was, and is he, is he still now Brighton Marathon Race Director or... Yeah. Okay. So Tim has been calling for records to be almost like they did with the cycling hour record. We stop records pre-carbon plated shoes and we have new records post-carbon plated shoes. Okay. And and he been calling out how ridiculous this is that Beth runs 1441 in a 5k, how ridiculous this is. This is just due to the shoes. Simple as. Everyone was training hard then. They're still training hard now. It can't possibly have anything to do with training. Okay, that's fine. If we're going to treat people equal, I know the, the Brighton Marathon didn't play, take place in 2020, but in 2019, I'd be pretty sure that probably most of the top 10 runners were in carbon plate to choose. Now, if they were, were any of those runners, did you look at what the previous PBs were and did you pull any of them up on Twitter and say, well, he wouldn't have won the Brighton Marathon in that time if he wasn't wearing carbon plated shoes? No, no, didn't. And why not? Because it wasn't a world record? Because what, what, is that, is that the only reason that it's not a world record, that we're not picking on those people, but we're picking on this person? You know, so for me, there's a lot of ethical stuff there. I just, I just don't think it's fair. The, ne the, the negativity that this particular case has received, when so many people before, maybe because they weren't world bests, have been completely fine. Ian? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, there's, there's definitely a, a clear conflict of interest there as well, I think, isn't there? That, um, uh, you know, when you're commenting on a race that you're organising, then it's probably not in your interest to uh, to point that out. But, yeah, I just think uh, people need, I think the people involved need to take a, a step back in terms of thinking about the impact it's having on the sport and how it's viewed, I think, externally, because um, I don't think that's that's helpful. I do wonder if people who come from a sort of multi-sport background are a bit more open to it as well, just because they're used to um, equipment influencing performance a lot more. Maybe that's uh, making people a bit more open-minded if they're coming from a triathlon than a, a running background. I think I think there is a there, there's always been this thing in running where uh, certainly traditionally people think of it as a pure sport. It's just a, you pull a pair of trainers on and you just run as the, uh, the distance as fast as you can. But I think it's maybe a little bit simplistic that you know we're going back to the days where people thought you were cheating if uh, if you trained 
um, in the early 1900s with running. And I think we've come a long way since then. And uh, we know that there's a lot of things influencing performance and shoes are just one of them. And I think we need to move past it as a, as a sport. Um, there's been boundaries put on that, obviously, in terms of the sport, what shoe manufacturers can do now. Uh, I think we just accept that working within those. Um, I think there have been other, many other points that have, uh, we could have drawn similar lines in terms of uh, well best performances. Um, and I think cycling's experience with the hour record is not one that you'd want to mimic in terms of all it did was just muddy the waters. And I think the UCI eventually went back to uh, allowing people to do whatever they wanted for the world hour record. So I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a blueprint that we want to adopt here. And it just makes things messier. It's like if you think of the, the women's uh, well best in marathon running and then you've got the, the women's only, the ones where you've been paced with male pacemakers, ones where you've got mixed races. Whenever you've got these several world records, it, I don't think it's helpful. Um, we just want to know what the fastest time that within the regulations at the time people can run the distance for. Um, and uh, I made that distinction there, not really about the shoes, but more about performance enhancing drugs and uh, and those being obviously important criteria. You know, within those um, boundaries, what can people do to to run those distances, and, and what's it possible for male and female athletes? Yeah, yeah. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna finish up. I'll come to you this, back back to you again in a second, Mike. Just to put, I think the last point for me is I. I fully understand that for some people, those shoes have improved their performance. Okay? I, I completely accept that and I understand that. And I'm neither pro or against the shoes. So if they suddenly decided they were going to stop everybody wearing carbon plated shoes, I don't care. It just doesn't bother me at all, you know? So it's not that I'm pro carbon plated shoes in any way. I think my point that I just want to really get across here is I'm frustrated with the lack of respect and the lack of congratulations for someone who achieves something, shoes or not, which is remarkable, and the you know the, the lack of well done, the lack of that it could be anything other than it's just the shoes, and almost making people who achieve something great feel like you're just a mediocre person and you just put on the right pair of shoes. And I think that's such a shame, and it's a shame for the athletes, and it's not their fault, you know, and that's what bothers me that it's so one-sided and it's so against the athlete. But um, so, yeah, so I'm going to, I'm going to finish there, but Mike coming to you. Yeah. Reiterate everything you guys have said. I am, I'm very impartial again about the shoes. Um, Part of me likes the science behind the shoes and the evolution of it. And part of me loves the, the old traditional sort of, you know, cinder track barefoot off you go type thing. Um, what I would say is I will never criticise those who work relentlessly hard to keep the sport honest and um, are diligent with, with making everyone accountable. That's a good thing. What I do get frustrated with and tired of sometimes is those haters who've just got to hate. You know, in this particular instance, then hate the game, don't hate the player direct that energy at the IAAF and World Athletics and and the people who should be making the policy decisions, not the people who are just playing by the rules that someone else has set. And then I think finally, I think we're in that time, we're in that culture now where 
nobody listening should be naive enough to not realise that some people just have an ulterior motive of shifting column inches, getting likes, getting follows. There's a lot of people making a lot of noise right now. So to make noise and be heard, you have to be controversial. So an easy way to do that is to try and kick down someone's the blocks that they're standing on when, when they've done well. Yeah, yeah. Ian, anything from you to finish? I think just one final point Mike mentioned there in terms of the technology. I think there's a lot of technology, uh, technological development that's come through with these shoes that will benefit runners at all levels. Um, one thing I've noticed with wearing um, some of the shoes is that some of the uh, uh, foam materials that are possible are incredibly comfortable. So people who do struggle with feet and with pain uh, running long distances will get a much more uh, pleasurable experience running long distances because of this technology. Uh, and that would, if you banned any of this, then obviously that development wouldn't happen because the R&D money just wouldn't be invested. So I think that's an important thing to, to think about on this as well. Fantastic. Well, we'll finish by congratulating Chris Thompson and, of course, Beth Potter on their amazing, outstanding performances. They're our heroes of the week. Uh, guys, thank you very much for talking. Uh, we shall aim for the same time again next week. Until then, I hope the sun keeps shining where you are. See you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at the Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport X. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the Endurance Coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com, where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon.